Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Did you know that one particular year, Christmas was almost canceled by the United States government? I didn't either. And I'm assuming most of you didn't know because most of us were not born or alive back then. Uh, the year was 1918. And uh, the, the world was embroiled in World War I. And the Council on National Defense began deliberating uh, on whether to turn toy factories into ammunition centers, whether to discourage the uh, spending of money on gifts and exchanging gifts, and instead to encourage our citizens to purchase war bonds to help the war cause. The council was about to pass a resolution that would legislate the suspension of Christmas in 1918 until the inventor of the erector set intervened. The toy company owner A.C. Gilbert requested to appear before the council, which included the Secretary of War, Secretary of Navy, and other high-ranking military officials. When it was his turn to enter the council's chambers, Mr. Gilbert handed out some toy air rifles, uh, submarines, and trains, and coloring books to the council members. As he explained how toys help develop, help children develop important skills like problem solving and creativity, some of the council members began playing with the toys. Choo choo! <laughs> While well, he's talking. It's actually, Secretary of the Navy, Josephus, uh, Joseph, Joseph, excuse me, Daniels, that's his real name, uh, became enamored with a toy submarine. Another official began pushing a toy train around on the table in the chambers. The council's decision didn't come immediately, but Gilbert, when he saw that the council members were playing with the toys, he knew he had won them over. Eventually, the council ruled that Christmas would continue that year, as always, as normal in America. But thanks to A.C. Gilbert, the cancellation of Christmas in 1918 was averted. And when the Council of National Defense's decision made it to the media that year, the Boston Globe published a front-page headline that read, The Man Who Saved Christmas. Well, although a Christmas without exchanging gifts would be disappointing, I think we could still have something worth celebrating, and that is the first gift at Christmas, the perfect Christmas gift, the birth of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Luke chapter 2 and to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder as we take a look at the traditional Christmas story in the scriptures. And on your sermon note handout, I want to encourage you to jot down the big idea for today, uh, which is this. Jesus is the perfect gift at Christmas because he meets our greatest need. Jesus is the perfect gift at Christmas because he meets our greatest need. 
He's the perfect gift at Christmas because, as you will soon see, he met the need of the receivers. Uh, well, what's the need? Well, we are all born separated from God by our sin and unable to earn our way to heaven. Uh, next, Jesus uh, expresses the heart of the giver, which would be the Heavenly Father giving his Son. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. Next, Jesus also, he's a, he's a perfect gift because he exceeds expectations. Through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, the rebellious sinner is able to receive love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and access to all the privileges that come with being a child of God. And so let's take a look at the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 together, starting in verse 1. Uh, Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, excuse me, and then while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Here's the first of three truths that uh, this, this passage tells us about Jesus being the perfect gift. Uh, number one on your outline is this, the Christmas story happened at the perfect place. The Christmas story happened at the perfect place. One of the many Bible doctrines that is revealed, or are revealed, excuse me, in the Christmas story is the doctrine of God's sovereignty, or what some people call providence. Uh, in brief, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is the Lord's hand in the glove steering the wheel of time. Or another way to say it, to explain it, would be it's God's ability to work through world events and man's decisions to get his will accomplished. So in the Christmas story, we see the Lord ordained when the Savior would be born. If you would look back at verse 1 with me, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. During this period in history, Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the superpower in the world at that time. Augustus, the Caesar at the time, the, the leader, the president, the king, he thought he was advancing his own kingdom and name. What he didn't realize, though, is that he was being used by God to advance God's name and kingdom. Something else about the timing of Jesus' birth, it's worth noting, is the fact that this time in history is, is a period where the entire civilized world, mainly around the Mediterranean Sea, was, was under one ruler. And the benefit of that is that it would make it easier for the apostles after Jesus 
was born and then grew up and started to preach his message and died, it would make it easier for the apostles to spread the gospel from city to city and from country to country, all under one empire. Next, the Lord ordained how Jesus would get to where he needed to be born. Notice it says all the world would be registered. The world, of course, referencing the Roman world at that time. Uh, the Roman Empire would typically take censuses every 14 years. Excuse me, there's a fly that wants to participate in the message today. Um, every 14 years. And the purpose of those censuses for the Roman Empire was to evaluate taxation, troop deployment, population trends, so on and so forth. Next, then, we're told in verse 4 that the Lord ordained where Jesus would be born. Uh, it says, Joseph also went up to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, what appears to be standard operating procedure for a mega empire evaluating population trends, taxation, and troop deployment was actually the Lord moving the chess pieces in place to accomplish his will. We know this because it was the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2 speaking for the Lord who prophesied 700 years earlier. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this was, this was the fulfillment of one of many prophecies. So what does God's sovereignty have to do with the Christmas story? Well, first it means that after God spoke through his Old Testament prophets about sending a Savior who would save the world from their sins, the Lord didn't bite his fingernails in fretting nervousness going, oh no, how am I going to do this? <laughs> I overpromised this time. How on earth am I going to pull this off? I mean, these are big goals. No, no, he didn't fret. Secondly, it means that when the Lord needed to get Joseph and Mary and Jesus in utero relocated to Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy from 700 years earlier, the Lord simply thought, no problem, this is easy. See, I've already planned to have Caesar take a census to move everybody to where I want them to be at that time. In fact, I even ordained the Roman Empire would rise to power during this season in history. Easy as that. Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1, which tells another side of the Christmas story, they both show us the Lord simply orchestrated his sovereign plan over several centuries. Now, don't miss this. He used the political and military decisions of kings, the obedience and disobedience of his own people, military conquests and defeats, the rise and fall of various empires, the birth and death of ancestors, the marriages, number of children, and gender of children, even unbelievers that didn't believe God existed, the Lord used to ensure the prophesied Savior would be born at just the right time, in just the right place, to just the right people, in order to fulfill more than 100 prophecies. 
That's a good place for an amen, people. I mean, if you just need to wake up a little, I'm, that's, a, that's, that's, that's like mind-blowing, synapse-firing, what? Yeah, yeah. So what, what does that mean for us? Well, in verses 1 through 4, we see the description of events that you and I would hear on the nightly news or on social media. However, they remind us of a very simple truth that we must not miss. And it's this. The Lord often uses the mundane to ordain. The Lord often uses the mundane to ordain. Like a master chess player, he subtly uses seemingly unrelated events to execute his loving plan for those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The Lord is able to use our sin or the sins of others against us. The loss of a job or a job promotion. The uniting of two families in marriage or the dividing of a family through a divorce. The death of a loved one or the birth of a child. Financial setbacks or financial windfalls. Health problems or a healthy lifestyle. Natural disasters or beautiful weather. He's able to use all of them because they all fall under his purview as a loving, sovereign, and good God. So the, the hope and encouragement there for all of us is that he can, if he can do all that for Jesus and Joseph and Mary, then he could certainly work through the mundane events of our lives to accomplish his good plans for us. Next, if you would, look at uh, uh, verses 8 through 11 with me. So now, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all. For all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's number two on your outline. The Christmas story exists for imperfect people. The Christmas story exists for imperfect people. You've, you've heard me say this before. Christmas exists because of us, but it is not about us. Had we not been lost in our sin, no Savior would have been needed to find us. Had we been able to save ourselves, no Savior would have come to rescue us. Now this is important, I need to clarify that when I say the Christmas story exists for an imperfect people, I don't mean that we were almost perfect, but God just kind of helped us cross the finish line. You know, like we were 9.99 on the perfection scale. No, the, the scriptures are clear, and we've got to think biblically about this here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death. Uh, therefore, Whoa, there we go. Therefore, God's expectation was that we would make it all the way to the top of his moral mountain, but when we did not get there, we fell 
not just a little bit, we fell all the way down to the bottom of the canyon. We fell way short. However, there's good news. The depth at which we'd fallen is exactly how far God was willing to go to save us. So, this implicitly is proven in two ways in verses 8 and 14, 8 through 14, excuse me. Uh, here's the letter A on your outline. The angel's presence reminds us of God's holiness. The angel's presence reminds us of God's holiness. It says an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The original language uh, literally says the angel appeared beside them or stood beside them. Now, this is another one of many Bible scenes that I wish I could have been there to see, you know? Or I, if, there, if it's possible in heaven someday to watch some instant replay on a high-definition screen, a massive high-definition screen. Play that again, Lord. I want to see that. I, I really want to see how that happened, you know? Hopefully he won't replay any of my sins, but... Uh, but, but but I've always wondered how that went. Like the shepherds, they're out in the fields at night managing their flocks while they're feeding and they're just sitting there. They've got their staff and they're, they're just guiding the flock and all of a sudden there's a guy that shows up next to them who wasn't there before. I've always, hey, how you doing? Ah! You know, just, he's shining, he's white, it's dark. There's just a couple shepherds there. It's a, it's a bleak empty landscape, some hills, and you just got meh, meh, going on. That's all you can hear. And some guy just shows up. That would have scared me anyway, if it was just a human, but let alone an angel of the Lord. It says they were filled with fear. The original struggles to convey how afraid they were uh, if translated literally into the English, it would read, they feared a great fear. So you can see the struggle in the Greek text there. If I were to translate it into a modern vernacular, I would, I would translate it as, they were freaking out. There, there, was, there, was no, there was no, oh, hey, man, what are you doing out here tonight? It was, it was startling for them. Now, this is interesting. Uh, the response to the presence of God or his angels piqued my curiosity this week. And it's, uh, this response that we're seeing from the shepherds is actually quite common. Uh, and so just for curiosity's sake, I, I looked up most of the verses in the Bible in which we are told an angel appeared to men. And I wanted to see how men or humans reacted when an angel showed up. And... What I found is that in a majority of the cases, there was one of three responses. They fell on their face, they were terribly afraid, or they did exactly as the angel had told them to do, or all three. For example, in Genesis 18:2, Abraham bowed and pleaded for favor when two angels showed up outside of his tent. In Numbers 22, verse 31, Balaam bowed down when he realized there was an angel with his sword drawn standing in front of he and his donkey. In Joshua, chapter 5, verse 13, when Joshua met an angel outside of Jericho, he fell on his face and worshipped. In 1 Chronicles 21, 6, when David and his elders saw an angel of the Lord with his drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem, 
They all fell on their faces. In Matthew 28, verse 4, at the resurrection, the Roman soldiers trained as special ops guys to guard the tomb. And if anybody gets into the tomb and tries to steal Jesus' body, they would die. They'd be killed for failing on the job. Well, the Roman soldiers were guarding Jesus' tomb on Easter morning. It says, they trembled and became like dead men when they saw descending from heaven an angel who rolled back the stone and then sat on it. And then there's Luke 24, verse 5. When women arrived at Jesus' tomb on Easter morning to anoint his body, they saw two angels and were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Are you picking up on a trend here? Now, why do people respond to God's presence or his angels like this? Well, here's why. God's manifest presence declares his holiness and discloses our sinfulness. Whenever God or one of his angels shows up, there's something that happens in man's spirit that automatically, instantly reminds man he's made from dust and he better get on his face. There is no, I've been wanting to talk to you, man. I got a few words I want to have with you. I ain't happy with what you've been doing in my life. There's none of this negotiating or a, a bargain with the man upstairs when the real God or one of his angels shows up. There's, huh? There's a fear. Next, letter B, the Savior's provision reminds us of man's sinfulness. The Savior's provision reminds us of man's sinfulness. The angel's presence reminds us of God's holiness. Well, the Savior coming reminds us that man are sinners. The angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, he says. The shepherd's fearful response is understandable because a majority of the time in the Bible when angels showed up, as I just said, it's because man did something wrong. That was another thing I learned in my study of just going through the scriptures and looking at when angels showed up. I couldn't find any examples where angels showed up and said, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Just want you to know that. I got to head back to heaven. Keep it up, man. You're doing great. Usually, they showed up because there was a problem, and man was doing something wrong and needed to be redirected. Well, here, you can understand why the shepherds would react that way. Instead, this is one of those rare occasions where angels showed up with good news to say, hey, I, we got an announcement to make. We got, a, we got a big announcement to make, and you guys get to be the first ones to hear it. So instead of having a great fear, the angel wanted the shepherds to have great joy. Why? Well, look at verse 11. Oh, this is, this is Christmas in one verse. For unto you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ, the Lord, is born. We're told in verse 21 that he, he would be called Jesus. The, the name Jesus is significant as well because uh, it's the Greek word, Iesus, which comes from the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, which means Yahweh saves. This is important because nearly every time the Lord named someone in the scriptures, the name described the person's character, 
their purpose in God's plan or both? And in this case, Jesus' name not only describes his character and purpose, but it also implicitly discloses our greatest need for a Savior. The need to be saved from our sin and the consequences of spending eternity in hell to pay for them is our greatest need. And so the Christmas story reveals that God would rather be with us instead of separated from us. It reveals that he would rather die for us than spend eternity without us. And I find that pretty profound. How about you? So that's why Jesus is the perfect gift at Christmas, because he meets our greatest need. Next, look at verses 12 to 14 as we see what else happened on this glorious night. And this will be a sign to you, the angel said. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice the, the praising of God. Back in those days, it was common. It was common in kingdoms for there to be a lot of pomp and circumstance when a child was born, a prince or a princess. There, there was a great anticipation for the birth. I mean, like, take what we see with, uh, in Great Britain with the royals and magnify it times ten. There would be great celebration and trumpets and parades and... Uh, display of the military and uh, public statement and so on and so forth. And the angels are, what they're doing here is they're stating with heavenly authority that royalty was born. That God came down to be with his people. And that the anticipated Messiah had finally arrived. Now the last half of verse 14 uh, I think needs a little explaining because it's often misquoted on, uh, I'm reading the ESV here, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's often translated in Christmas carols and on Christmas cards as peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Have you heard that? Sounds familiar, right? Well, this actually comes from the King James translation, which, as you've heard me mention before, uh, was tainted by King James's bias and the Church of England's bias at the time. If you want to hear more about that, um, there's a message on baptism that I preached last spring where I explained that. So, what does this verse really say then? Well, the angels are declaring that God no longer wants to be at odds with his people. It's, 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 it's saying that thus when God came with a multitude of heavenly hosts. He came not to conquer the earth like an invading ruler of another country would. Because that was also customary in those times. That, that when, a, when a king was going to go visit another country, if he was bringing war, he brought his soldiers with him. If he was not, and he was coming in peace, he would ride into that country, across the border, into the capital of that country, on a donkey. That's why Jesus had the, uh, the, the, the majestic uh, uh, triumphal entry 
into Jerusalem when he began his last week on earth. So, so how is God then coming in peace and how is he going to make peace with his people? By offering his son as a means of reconciliation between God and men. So, who is God pleased with then according to the verse? Or who does he show favor to as some translations render? Well, it's simply this. He's pleased with those who give their hearts to the baby in the manger. He is pleased with those who respond to the gospel message that Jesus preached by repenting of their sin and by faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in him for their salvation. That pleases God. Those are the people who get peace with God because they've dealt with their sin problem and they're no longer at odds with him. Next, let's look at the last few verses, verses 15 through 20. As the, the scene wraps up, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In verse 18, and, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Well, here's the third point on your outline. The third thing that Christmas tells us about the gift and that is the Christmas story calls for a profound response. It calls for a profound response. It calls for exactly the opposite of you getting a gift on Christmas morning that you didn't want to get. Oh, well, I thank you. That's nice that you thought of me. No, 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 no. Profound means, and I chose this word on purpose, according to the dictionary, profound means to penetrate a person's thoughts or knowledge to go beyond what is superficial or external, or to cause an intense emotional response. We see that here with the shepherds. They responded profoundly, did they not? Notice in verse 17, the first profound response they gave is letter A on your outline, the shepherds witnessed. It says in verse 17, they made known what they had been told. Uh, the NIV translation, if you have that, says they spread the word. Th this news was too good to keep to themselves that the Messiah had arrived. And they were so impacted by this good news, they couldn't contain themselves. So they began to witness. To witness is simply to testify to what you've personally seen or experienced in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's to, it's to share the good news of how man or woman can be reconciled to God and have forgiveness and eternal life. Unfortunately, many Christians miss the blessing of testifying because the world has convinced them it's offensive to do so. But my response to this has always been, what's so offensive about telling someone God loves you 
and he loves you so much, he sent his only son to die for you so that he could spend eternity with you. And he wants you to know it really bad. How's that offensive? I, I just struggle with that. Christmas time's the best time of year to talk about our faith because Jesus is being talked about everywhere. Did you notice that? The world can accept him, they can affirm him, they can deny him, they can reject him, but they cannot ignore him, especially in December. For one month out of the year, our nation, in our, our entire nation, Jesus is, is seen in decorations, he's heard in songs, and read about in cards. He's inescapable. And entering into a gospel conversation with an unbelieving family member or coworker is as easy as asking the question, hey, have you, have you heard the backstory on this Christmas carol that we're listening to? Did you, did you know, have you ever heard what Hark the Herald Angels Sing is really about? Or, hey, can I tell you what? You know, I was just reading recently, I heard at this awesome church called Vanguard with this really good-looking preacher we've got, that joy to the world means this. Did you know that? You see, it says in the lyrics this, it's talking about Jesus coming, and that's joyful. And There's a great story behind these songs. A couple of Christmas seasons ago, I was uh, watching a, a Christmas special uh, with my family on television one evening, and uh, it, was a, it was a holiday special by a secular singing group that was on one of the major networks. And um, as I sat there and was watching it, it they were singing many of the classic carols. Uh, two thoughts came to my mind. First of all, I thought, these singers, which I know they're not, they're not believers, they're not Christians, and they're pretty bold about making that clear, but they're singing about a savior they don't even know. And the second thought that came to my mind is, they're proclaiming the gospel to our nation. And they don't even know that. They're singing these carols that are gospel-saturated. And they're getting the word out. But that's why Jesus is the perfect gift of Christmas, because he meets our greatest need. Next, the shepherds, not only did they witness, we see in verse 18 that they wondered. They took time to wonder. That's a key word that's easy to skip over as we read the text. Amazement is a common theme that throughout the Gospel of Luke. And in this particular verse, the word that's used in the original text means to be amazed or astonished, to, to, uh, to have that emoticon on texting, like, oh, like just speechlessness. They were amazed that divinity would, would come into humanity, that royalty would become poverty, that the Son of Man would become the Son of an earthly man, that the light of the world would be born into the dark of night. They were blown away by that. Jesus' birth, life, and death contradicted all the conventional expectations that Jews had about this king that would come and save them. So they wondered. They also, let her see, they worshipped. They worshipped. Notice it says in verse 20, and the shepherds returned. I take that to understand they went back out to the field to take care of their flock, and they were out in the fields glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen and heard. Worship is simply uh, 
the adoration and celebration of an awesome God. It's adoring who God is and celebrating what he's done. Our corporate worship attendance should be better than ever during the Christmas season. And our worship volume should be the highest it is all year during the Christmas season because Christmas reveals that God came to us when we wouldn't go to him. So, the shepherds, their profound response is a model for us. They witnessed, and we should witness. They wondered, and we should wonder, and they worshipped. And man, should we worship at Christmas. Well, here's a couple applications that come to mind. We want to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, as James says. And Jesus said, if you love me, then obey my commands. And and he said, he said to another group in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's in Luke 8, if, if you call me Lord, Lord, why do you not do what I say? And so this is why I always share a couple of applications at the end of the message to give you some, some uh, inspiration maybe uh, on how, to, how do we take this and apply it to our lives. Now, the Holy Spirit may give you another personal application, and I want to encourage you to write that down if he does. But here's one. Find peace in the unseen, surprising work of a sovereign God. God's hand at work behind the scenes of the Christmas story should encourage us because it means his hand is at work behind the scenes in our lives as well. It means that if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you've been promised he's working all things together for good. Even when we can't see it, or we think our good is gooder than his. And yes, it requires faith when we don't feel it, when we don't see it, but as I talked about, I think, last week, it requires faith that what God is doing behind the curtain is much better than what I could do myself, and that when he chooses to pull the curtain back, it's going to be great. But in the meantime, he's like a producer or director getting everything in place behind the curtain on stage before his big reveal. Next... Number two, second application that comes to mind is to preach the gospel to yourself daily. The most joyful Christ followers I've ever known over the years do this. They have a habit of doing this. Well, how do they do it? I thought you'd never ask. Every day they remind themselves that at one time, they were enslaved to sin and separated from God, deserving to spend eternity in hell. They remind themselves, I sinned, he came, he died, he rose, I'm forgiven. You want me to say that again? I sinned, he came, he died, he rose, I'm forgiven. Joyful Christ followers realize that, that only one person in the entire universe has loved them at their worst. So he could give them his best. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, 
I would love to speak to you privately after this service to help you change that. Well, I can't remember where I first saw this, but uh, there's a little poem I read many, many, many years ago. Uh, You probably have seen it too. I don't know who wrote it or else I would give them credit for it. I just have a copy of it in my files, but I think it's worth us reading again. Uh, The author writes, If our greatest need had been information, he would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent us a savior. Jesus is the perfect gift at Christmas because he meets our greatest need. He meets the need of the receiver, expresses the heart of the giver, and he exceeds our expectations. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.